Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Libby Nelson, policy editor at Vox, and today I'm joined by Rachel Cohen, senior policy reporter at Vox. Hey! And politics reporter Nicole Narea. Hello! This week, we're going to talk about a place near and dear to my heart, Kansas. Kansas is where I spent the first 18 years of my life. It's the home of the best barbecue in the country. And most important for our purposes, it is also the first state since the fall of Roe versus Wade to hold an election where voters weighed in on abortion. What happened then surprised me and surprised a lot of people. The pro-abortion right side won that election pretty decisively. Only 41% of voters favored a constitutional amendment that would essentially allow the state's legislature to ban abortion if it chose. And 59% of voters said no. That's a very high number in what's long been a really red state. And it's gotten people wondering what it means for elections this fall and beyond. So, Rachel, what was this Kansas amendment and the vote over it actually about? Kansas, just for context, is a state that has a lot of abortion restrictions. Over the last decade, they have passed many. They have mandatory waiting periods. They have mandatory ultrasounds. You can't do it over telemedicine. There's limits on how late in a pregnancy you can get an abortion. And one of them that they passed in 2015 was a ban on a very common second trimester abortion procedure called dilation and extraction, or DNE. And so that specific ban was challenged in court. It went all the way up to the state Supreme Court. And in 2019, the state Supreme Court issued what was, to you know most people following, still a fairly surprising ruling. But the justices determined that within Kansas's constitution, the way that they protect personal autonomy, that includes protection of one's right to end a pregnancy. So basically what that meant is while abortion restrictions are not inherently banned in Kansas, as of 2019, they have to be what's considered narrowly tailored and the D&E ban from 2015 wasn't. So that was struck down. And there was another one struck down that dealt with sort of excessive health regulations on abortion clinics. But Kansas still remains, even after that, a very highly regulated state for abortion. What this amendment essentially was, it was put on the ballot by anti-abortion activists and Republican legislators to basically overturn that 2019 state Supreme Court decision to say, we have no 
state protection to an abortion that the court ruled three years ago. So basically what they did was they were saying, if we don't overturn this amendment, then every restriction in the state is now presumed, quote, unconstitutional. Legal experts didn't think that was true, but that was basically the line that the anti-choice advocacy groups ran with. The amendment was really confusing. It was worded really confusingly, and it was placed on this August primary ballot, basically because they knew there would be expected lower turnout than if it were in the general election. So that was why there was a, an amendment vote happening. And basically what was at stake is that without Roe v. Wade, this constitutional protection clarified by the state Supreme Court in 2019 was Kansas's sort of last barrier against a total or near total ban of abortion, which all of Kansas's Republicans controlled neighboring states like Texas and Oklahoma and Missouri have have done. So what we're talking about here is essentially a constitutional amendment to reverse the state Supreme Court decision that was on the ballot during a primary season or to override a state Supreme Court decision. That is very confusing. Yes, it's confusing. It's unusual. You know, the other ballot measures that are happening are not like that kind of context specifically. So did it work out the way they were expecting? Was there low turnout? It was definitely higher turnout than anyone expected. I mean, I will say like, Leading up to this, everyone thought it was going to be very close, and it really wasn't very close at all. The pro-choice side won decisively in this measure. Yeah, and and also the turnout was so high that it suggests that even some Republicans voted against adopting this constitutional amendment, which I think, you know, has kind of cast doubt on this conventional wisdom that abortion is an issue on which Americans are sort of divided on party lines. Like, this is an issue that can reach across the aisle on, or at least Democrats can, um, and maybe is sort of spelling disaster for a Republican strategy here. Um, So I think that is also important to note in terms of how we're interpreting the results. Yeah, I mean, when you look at those numbers, I I think, you know, I agree with with both of you that nobody knew what was going to happen beforehand. I think I I went into the the day certainly prepared for, for anything I did not see such a large margin of victory coming. You know, I mean, 60-40 is like, that's that's not, a, that's not a small win. Especially on such a sort of objectively confusingly worded amendment that it definitely implies there was a lot of effective education and mobilization happened for people leading up to that. Yeah, but that said, I think like on the confusing wording part, I think I've seen some anti-abortion advocates saying in the wake of the decision that the confusing wording was actually to their disadvantage. And they believe that there's sort of this other similar ballot measure in Kentucky that's sort of a simple one-liner that might be sort of easier for voters to interpret. And and they think that just the way that the amendment was worded in Kansas made it so that the pro-choice movement could kind of say, like, fear monger about the potential implications of it. Of course, I think like you know, Republicans classifying it as fear-mongering is maybe sort of a misnomer here because, you know, the in, in all likelihood, Republicans would have enacted a total abortion ban that would have had terrible outcomes for women's reproductive health. But yeah, I think that's sort of how I've seen them interpreting it in in the wake of the vote. So what, you know, how did the pro-abortion rights side pull this off? What kind of mobilizing and organizing and messaging had to go into a decision like this? So I think that the leaders of the pro-choice coalition that was organizing in Kansas. The main group organizing was under the banner of Kansas for Constitutional Freedom. I think they deserve so much credit for 
really kind of spearheading a very organized and disciplined strategy. Basically, Kansas voters have have said in multiple polls leading up to the amendment that they do not support a full ban on abortion. Most voters in the state want exceptions for rape, incest, and risk to the mother's life. And even amongst Republicans, that was true. And 29% of the state are independents. I think Kansas plays a really important role right now in the Midwest, not only for Kansas women, but also like people in the South and in all the neighboring states right now are increasingly going to Kansas for abortion care that they can't get in their own states. So a, a big line that the anti-abortion advocates like to say is, oh, you know, we're getting an explosion of late-term painful abortions from all over the country. We need to pass this amendment because we need to stop late-term abortions. Um, We need to ensure there can be regulation in Kansas. And when I emailed the coalition for an interview to sort of set up a time with their spokesperson, they sent me a list of, like, messaging points that they send to all reporters covering this issue and these messaging that they wanted us to have, us in the media, and this is what they put in their ads to. They sort of emphasized abortion is already heavily regulated in Kansas. They were not emphasizing, like, we are looking to get rid of regulations. They're sort of saying, like, this is the status quo. We have regulation. The other side's going to try to tell you that we don't, but we do. We're a heavily regulated state. They emphasize abortion is already banned after 22 weeks. They emphasize there's been no late-term abortions in the state at all, zero, since 2018. And they also took a lot of effort to sort of emphasize that 70% of abortions in 2021 were before nine weeks in the state. Over 90% were before 12 weeks. You know, 60% of the state turned out to support the status quo. I don't think we have strong evidence that like 60% of Kansas voters would turn out to overturn a law requiring parental consent. You know, that doesn't mean the advocate shouldn't work for that. But I think it's important to recognize that the campaigners were a emphasizing sort of we live in a restricted state right now. That is the kind of climate that we live in. Our opponents want to ban it completely. And that is a radical difference. And the last thing I'll say is like the campaigners really leaned on frames about autonomy and freedom from government control. They didn't even avoid the word abortion, which I think is useful to note. Like they weren't hiding that this was about abortion, but they really did kind of emphasize more what you might call like libertarian messaging frames. And this is something we've covered at Vox. Like there's polling from different progressive polling groups that have kind of showed that like within the pro-choice coalition, like a third of people identify as pro-choice don't actually support abortion, but they really oppose government control and government meddling. And so I think it's it's very helpful to recognize that the Kansas advocates emphasize the government wants to come between a woman and her doctor. They want to impede on your freedom. And we already live in a very heavily restricted state. And I think those messages were very effective. So I think that's a great segue into what organizers are looking at beyond Kansas when it comes to abortion being on the ballot this fall. But first, we have to take a break. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. 
Affordable, high-quality basic healthcare for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. And we're back. My name is Libby Nelson, and I'm here with Rachel Cohen and Nicole Nerea. You know, one thing that I think is, is interesting about abortion politics in Kansas is that, at least for people from the region, it really does have kind of a symbolic role. Kansas pre-Roe was more, um, had fewer restrictions on abortions than some other Midwestern states. You're sort of seeing a situation like might be set up now, which is not to say that the procedure was totally unregulated at all, but that there were options available there that maybe weren't in Oklahoma or Missouri or Texas. It had pretty liberal abortion laws, you know, well into the, the 80s and early 90s. And it was also a real flashpoint for pro-life activism starting um, in the, the early 90s. And what I think one of the reasons for that is that you had this collision of a very conservative political culture with a somewhat historically unusual degree of access. And as you were saying, Rachel, actually, one thing that's happened since then is is that access has been tightened really significantly. Like, there, it's no longer the case that Kansas is a place where you can, you know, find a late-term abortion always if, if that's something that you need. Given all of that, I think a lot of people just sort of see Kansas and think, oh, this is a red state. And if it can win in this really red state, which it like very undoubtedly is. Um, and people see that and think, oh, if, if abortion can win in this really red state, it can win everywhere. But obviously, every state is different. Everybody could probably talk about their home state and what makes it different and unique and special and not like any other state. What are we looking at, you know, when we're looking at other places that are going to be voting directly on abortion later this year? Where else is this question going to come up? So I think there's like a bunch of ballot initiatives here that we should be watching. But I think, you know, as you said, perhaps Kansas might not be predictive of the outcomes there just because it is such like a unique political environment. Like, I think we have to remember, you know, Kansas has a Democratic governor, but at the same time, you know, when they voted against adopting this constitutional amendment, you know, they on the same day nominated Chris Kobach, who's like an ultra conservative Trump ally, who's described himself as 100% pro-life to, you know, re-enter political office as state attorney general. Um, so there's just like a lot of contradictions in Kansas politics. And I'm not sure if like 
it might be predictive of the outcome elsewhere. So like one of the places where anti-abortion advocates are looking to is Kentucky. And it's a similar initiative that's on the ballot there. It would amend the state constitution basically to clarify that there is no prescribed right to an abortion as construed through the state constitution. But Kentucky is kind of, it's a different place. You know, it's redder. It voted for Trump by a bigger margin. And as I mentioned earlier, the proposed language of Kentucky's constitutional amendment is also kind of simpler. So advocates of the measure think that they might be able to avoid some of the messaging problems that their counterparts had in Kansas. So that's one place where uh, we're seeing abortion restrictionists looking to. Um, Montana is another place where they're considering a ballot measure that would provide personhood protections to infants born alive after attempted abortions. But it's not as clear as to whether that'll pass since the majority of Montana voters say that it should be legal in all or most cases. But, you know, there's also the pro-choice movement is trying to sort of harness the, the power of some of these ballot initiatives this fall. And these are all happening in November. So we have Vermont and California. They both already protect abortion rights under state law, but they want to go even further by codifying abortion rights in their state constitutions and tying them kind of directly to the state constitutional rights to privacy and equal protection under the laws. Both of those are probably likely to pass, given that more than two-thirds of Vermont voters support legalizing abortion in all or most cases, and roughly four out of five California voters opposed the overturning of Roe. There's one other state to watch, which is Michigan. They haven't officially put a state constitutional amendment to protect abortion rights on the ballot in November yet, but they're expected to since abortion rights advocates gathered a record number of signatures supporting such a measure. And I think it's even more important in Michigan because like the ballot measures in Vermont and California won't really immediately change anything about the status quo in terms of abortion access in those like already very pro-abortion states. But Michigan actually has a pre-row abortion ban on the books that was first enacted in 1931, and it has no exceptions for rape or incest. The governor, Gretchen Whitmer, who's a Democrat, asked the Michigan Supreme Court in April to strike that down and affirm that the state constitution includes the right to access an abortion. That court battle is still playing out, and the ban's been blocked by other courts for now. But if this state constitutional amendment actually gets on the ballot, and if it passes, it would basically move that debate. And, and it is expected to pass if it does get on the ballot, since polling has shown that 58% of Michigan voters oppose the Supreme Court's decision to o- overturn Roe. So that's kind of the landscape of what we're looking at in terms of ballot measures. I think Michigan is really interesting because on the one hand, they're pushing for an affirmative clarification of abortion rights in the Constitution, like which is different from what happened in Kansas, where they're saying, like, go and, and fight this thing that's trying to change the state constitution. In Michigan, they're saying, let's pass something that's that sort of codifies and clarifies. But there's an element which I which, as I understand, advocates are definitely thinking about, which is trying to say, like, Using some of the same logic in in Kansas saying, like, if we don't pass this, if we don't do this affirmative thing, then we're going to, like, go back to the 1931 status quo. Then it's going to radically change because we're going to end up in a situation where, where, you know, we have no exceptions. And so it's this sort of tug and pull over, like, standing up, but also trying to, like, convince people, like, what is going to bring more radical change than not. And I think in Michigan, they like they are. I mean, and and as you said earlier about Kansas, like, they're not wrong. (laughs) It could lead to sort of more disruptive, radical change if they don't pass it. But it's sort of 
it's not like necessarily consistent with how I think some of the conversation, especially on the federal level, is playing out. And reading polling on abortion is so, it gets so complicated. It makes some of this a little unknown. Like national polls leading up to Roe v. Wade, like majority of Americans did not want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Majorities of Americans oppose the overturning of Ruby Wade. And in those same polls, majority of Americans say they would probably support a 15-week ban on abortion. And that's five weeks sooner than even the most conservative ban the Republicans in the House ever passed a few years ago. And one thing I've been thinking about a lot, and I know we'll talk more about Congress later, but like on the state level, there is like a very, very real and already happening likelihood of lawmakers doing total bans on abortion. Like now we just saw this in Indiana on Friday. But like that is not a popular concept with voters. And and so if you listen to the furthest right lawmakers in Congress right now, they're saying if you elect us in November, if we can retake control of Congress, then we're going to vote on a 15 week ban. Like they're not even really talking about voting on a total ban. They're talking about voting on a 15 week ban, which is kind of complicated because we know voters don't want to roll back reproductive rights. That puts advocates on sort of complicated, tricky terrain because voters are also like, maybe I'm okay with that. I don't know. And that doesn't mean that voters can't change their views or sort of learn more and adjust, but it's just, it makes it tricky when I think we're often talking, and I see this a lot with the post-Kansas discourse of like, if we're only talking about infringement, do you stand up for reproductive rights? Do you oppose reproductive rights? We're missing a lot of nuance that I think voters have, and that is harder to talk about, but like definitely a big factor in what's going on. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this because we know from research that there's a pretty strong status quo bias in any kind of referendum. People just don't want things to change. And I was having these like galaxy brain thoughts of like, who can even say what the status quo is on abortion, though, because the status quo was upended so dramatically. And then I like went and actually read the research and it was like, oh, this literally just means people like voting no on amending <laughs> right. constitutions. Like it, it really doesn't get that much more complex. Yeah, it's not just abortion. Right. It's not like, oh, like, let's vote yes or no to changing. It's like, can you say yes or no on this thing? It is easier to get people to vote no than it is to get them to vote yes. And I do wonder what that means for Kentucky, for Michigan and beyond. But at the same time, you know, a lot of the effect sizes we see in political science are right. pretty small. What we saw in Kansas is not like a small effect size, like 10% still is a pretty large margin of error for things to go awry. Yeah. And I wonder, like, how much of what we know about abortion polling is informed of like public opinion polling conducted prior to the Supreme Court's decision, because I feel like it suddenly became very real for a lot of people in red states and elsewhere. People often reference this Pew polling that was done maybe in 2014. And that polling showed that Kansas was like basically evenly divided on the subject of abortion. But I, I do think that like things have changed in the last few weeks and months and you know, when confronted with the actual prospect of enacting a 15-week abortion ban, people are going to start delving into the specifics of what that actually means for reproductive health. And, you know, I think ectopic pregnancies is not a subject that we really talked about before, but yeah. like suddenly that's something that Republicans are saying, no, we, we do support abortions in cases of ectopic pregnancies. So, uh, you know, as, as we delve into the specifics, I think, you know, maybe voters will change their mind. I, d I definitely agree that like things are changing. I was actually really interested, at least in like the immediate aftermath of what pollsters were finding. And so I did a story about three weeks after the decision. And so one of the polling firms that actually works with, directly with Planned Parenthood, it's interesting because 
the two biggest shifts in Dobbs that they had observed and they had been polling like in February, April, May, when the leaked decision came out and then they did another one post Dobbs and they found like, A, there's just been like sort of very remarkable drops in support for the Supreme Court, like bigger than one would have expected, including amongst independents, although Republicans haven't changed that. It's sort of interesting because it makes you think, okay, if you're trying to organize in a state like Kentucky or Arizona and you are trying to capitalize on public opinion, people are really changing their views of the Supreme Court, it looks like. But also, if you need to mobilize Republicans and Republicans still have high trust in the Supreme Court, do you attack the Supreme Court in your ads? But also, they did find that sort of the other biggest change since Dobbs was that more respondents found that since the ruling, they think it's likely and concerning that women would have to seek unsafe abortions and that victims of rape and incest would be forced to give birth. So they were basically like presented, here's an array of possible bad things that could happen because of Dobbs. What do you think is most concerning? And then it was like, what do you think is most likely to happen of these concerning outcomes? And so there was like a legitimate increase since the court, Supreme Court decision of people who who think that the health risk to women for getting unsafe abortions and victims of rape and incest are higher. And so I think those are kind of important things for candidates and advocates to be like thinking about, even though they don't totally track on to, I think, some of the messaging that reproductive rights has focused on over the last few years. Yeah, that makes me wonder. Um, we are three months today, actually, as we're recording this um, from Election Day. So obviously, there's still time for a lot of stuff to happen. But are we starting to see advertising and messaging in these states with these measures already? Or is that kind of something to keep an eye out for down the road over the next six weeks or so? Yeah, we definitely are seeing some competitive races, you know, Democratic candidates, particularly trying to pivot to abortion and, and make that a central issue in their campaigns. And, you know, obviously, there's limits to what the House and Senate can do on abortion, given the kind of margins that Democrats are likely to have if if they have control of those chambers at all. But it is a big issue in, in state races as well. Um, you know, in, in Georgia, I think it's a particularly interesting case. The Senate race is really close there. But, you know, Stacey Abrams is running for governor. Um, she's the Democratic nominee. And um, she's really tried to put the issue front and center. And, and she's now trailing um, the incumbent, Brian Kemp, by less than five points in the real clear politics polling average. And, you know, over two thirds of Georgia voters opposed overturning Roe, uh, including nearly half of Republicans. So that could be an issue that really tips the scales there. And, and Kemp has um, advanced a lot of abortion restrictions in Georgia that I think could make him, uh, that that record could kind of haunt him in this election. I'm also really, I mean, I'm, this is partially selfish because I, I live in Texas, but um, I'm interested in the Texas governor's race, which no one was expecting to be close, but it's now the closest it's been since the 1990s. You know, obviously a deep red state, but Republican Governor Greg Abbott, he's seeking a third term, saw his poll numbers drop recently since Dobbs came down. His lead's now just six percentage points as of June, and his opponent, 2020 presidential candidate, Democrat Beto O'Rourke, is now also outpacing him in fundraising. And that rise totally coincided in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's ruling. And Abbott's also been a proponent of Texas's trigger law banning almost all abortions, and that's set to go into effect in August. So, you know, I think it, it's just interesting seeing the aftermath of this uh, playing out in races that, you know, were projected to be competitive, but also in races that uh, nobody expected to be competitive.
Right. So there's sort of the places where abortion is is literally on the ballot. And then there's this idea that kind of nationwide in every election this fall, abortion is, is metaphorically on the ballot. And I've certainly seen tweets and, and comments from Democratic strategists and others over the last uh, week since the Kansas results that suggest like they very much want this election to, to be as much about abortion as possible. But what are we looking at sort of when we're looking at the nation as a whole three months from now? Um, in terms of the role that that we expect abortion to be playing? Is this going to be an abortion election, even if you don't live in a state with one of those amendments on the ballot? It is interesting. Like, remember when everyone said that the midterms would be focused on school reopenings? I mean, even back oh in... Oh, my God. <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> like, that was... I mean, obviously, people do this every cycle where they just take their issue and say, this will be the midterms. But there were so many takes on that. And then critical race theory was definitely sort of the big thing people thought it was going to be at the beginning of this year. I certainly thought I'd be writing about that connected to the midterms more than I than I have been. I mean, I guess we'll see if things change back to school. I do think that abortion and reproductive rights is going to be a big issue in all these states. And like something that I feel like is sort of, it, it doesn't have to be a, a problem, but I feel like people are kind of fighting over it. It's like, Okay, if you ask voters what are their top issues, they're saying inflation, they're saying the economy. Reproductive rights is not in in really the top few issues that voters are saying are most important to them, but it is an issue that right now has a lot of salience and I think we're seeing after Kansas like is still probably an issue that despite it not sort of being these generic issue polls, voters might not say it's the most important thing to them that's going to turn out their vote. It still might be the thing that gets them to go to vote just because that's how some of these dynamics play with each other. And I think I've seen some people being like, oh, why isn't Fetterman talking about abortion more, you know, in Pennsylvania? But like, they are talking about it. And so then it just becomes this thing of like, how much, how much do you center it? What, like, what's the right cocktail of, of attention to these different issues? Yeah. And I'm also wondering, like, you know, how much we can really glean from the Kansas results in terms of how this might shift campaign strategy because like you know i think there's some caveats that democrats ought to consider in terms of you know trying to extrapolate there and that it includes just the fact that the kansas vote was very straightforward on the abortion issue and and clearly it mobilized voters but like that was an a ballot measure that had like immediate legal consequences and, and maybe it was more real and specific to people but like you know, in a general election, there's just a lot more issues at stake um, and, and also just particular political personalities. And that comes with its own baggage. Um, and, you know, they have a set of policy positions among which abortion might not be the most important to voters. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that like extrapolating from from the Kansas vote and, and really going all in on abortion is really to Democrats favor. Obviously, I don't think we can read those results as anything but positive for them heading into the midterms, you know, like, Biden's abysmal approval ratings aside, the the poll numbers are are reflecting that, you know, for the first time since last November, 538's polling average showed that Democrats are leading on the generic ballot as of Monday, and and that's trending upwards. So the Dobbs decision has been a kind of major inflection point for Democrats here. And and I think the challenge is just keeping up that enthusiasm through November. To that point, also, it's like people are saying, you know, in November, a lot of these voters in Kansas are going to go vote for Republicans who say they want to ban abortion <laughs> outright. You know, it's like, maybe not, maybe they're going to mute it. But like, it is different when you're when you're voting on a lot of issues at once, who you, where you land, it, that's hard. 
Right. It's it's almost the flip side of um, all of these southern states that over and over elected governors and state legislatures who didn't want to expand right. Medicaid suddenly voting for ballot initiatives that, that expanded Medicaid. Exactly. And it's a little bit like, what, what do you think you've been voting on all this time? But, you know, yeah. at the same time, obviously, people do have issue hierarchies. And just because they tell a pollster they prefer something or vote for something, um, as in this case, when it's put up as a referendum on its own, doesn't mean that it's how they're going to vote when they're looking at sort of a, a an election more holistically. So we've got to take a break, uh, but we'll be right back with more of what's going on in Congress and the Biden administration on abortion. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back. So what, you know, what are Democrats doing in the Senate and on the national level on abortion, either sort of politically or policy-wise? So their strategy has evolved, but I can say that three weeks out from the decision, which is almost two months out from when we got the leaked opinion of the draft from early May in Politico, and also I think everyone who's been following these issues closely thought this was how the Supreme Court was going to roll, like they thought it was extremely likely that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe. Despite all of these early signals, Democrats in Congress and the Biden administration did not have a clear plan ready to go following the decision. And actually, Congress went straight. They had recess scheduled, so it was like took even longer to sort of get a plan in place. What we are seeing now, there has been sort of more movement in July. But given that they don't have enough votes to overcome a filibuster, one of the central debates in Congress, in the Senate particular, in particular, has been like, is it worth taking votes on bills that can't pass in order to get people on record that maybe could be used in a midterm ad or or sort of against them? Like, should, should we get Republicans, you know, let's say, to vote for a bill that would ban abortions, even in cases of rape, incest, and the health of the woman's life, even though that can't pass? Like, should we hold that vote anyway? And there was sort of a lot of resistance to it. Um, some people said, you know, the American people already know, like, we don't need more votes. They already know where lawmakers stand. Or they would say, like, maybe it will look bad if we keep holding votes on what we can't actually achieve. They sort of went back and forth for a couple of weeks on this. And then finally, after like a month or five weeks, the House held held this big vote on contraception. And I think a lot of people were kind of surprised how many Republicans in Congress voted against a woman's right to have birth control, you know? And then there was another vote on gay marriage, and that did a little better than the birth control one, which is kind of interesting in its own right. But like the House said, okay, we are actually going to put these people on record and hold formal votes. The Senate has not yet followed suit. There's like more discussion about whether they should. I would say right now, the major Senate strategy, they've been holding hearings, they've been holding like listening sessions and trying to sort of raise awareness with these other Congress tactics, but their main message to the American people right now is saying, elect us two more senators in November, like help us keep our majority and give us two more, and then we'll overturn the filibuster, and then we'll pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which is a very progressive bill that helps codify, that codifies Roe and goes beyond Roe in certain ways by like striking down a lot of the 
restrictions that the right has passed on the state level over the last decade. So anyway, that's kind of like where the plan is. And if you say to them, as I have tried, like, what happens if we don't elect two more senators? Like, they don't have an answer. They're not, they're like not up to that very possible possibility, which I think is a problem, personally. It is worth noting that, at the very least, Democrats are now favored to keep control of the Senate. um, And that's changed in the last few weeks. And the House is competitive, but it's not like nothing is assured there. So yeah, there's like just a big gaping hole in the Democrat strategy right now. We're not really getting much guidance from the White House on this either, because Biden has repeatedly said the best thing you can do in this moment is vote, which I think a lot of people have found lacking in, in terms of the the president's response on this. So, you know, it's kind of a movement without a leader at this point. I mean, maybe you could say, like, they wouldn't want to advertise their plan B now because that could hurt their plan A. And so maybe they do have something up their sleeve. I just don't actually think that they do right now. I don't think there's like a secret plan B waiting, which worries me. But if they did and they weren't like talking about it, I would I could be more sympathetic to that. <laughs> If you, if you have a copy of Democrat's yeah. Secret Plan B on, <laughs> on abortion, please send it to Rachel. Um, you know, is it to Democrats' advantage if this becomes an election about a 15-week abortion ban? It seems like there are some risks there in terms of what their agenda might actually be if Republicans were to take back both houses of Congress. I definitely think they should hope it doesn't turn on, like, 15-week bans and keeps on, like, broader themes about protecting women's rights and reproductive rights and fighting government control. I think that the more that they wade into the specifics of the weak bands, like the harder it is to to message around that. Yeah, and they've kind of allowed Republicans to control the conversation on this because like the day after Dobbs, people were talking about what are Republicans going to do if they get in power? And they were like floating the 15 week ban then. And, you know, in the absence of like Democrats having a plan, Republicans have been able to sort of shift the goalpost here. So... Yeah, they haven't gotten out in front of the issue. You know, we're looking three months ahead. We're looking to the next election. We're looking to the potential alternate, you know, secret plans or plan B that we're not hearing about. What is actually happening right now on the policy level uh, nationally? What's what's actually been done and what might be done in the coming weeks? So there's obviously limits to what Democrats can do on a national level. Um, you know, in many ways, the Supreme Court's decision punted the question to the states. But Biden did sign a couple of executive orders that are designed to protect abortion access. The latest one, which he issued last week, tries to help people travel out of state to receive abortions, ensure healthcare providers comply with federal law so they aren't delayed in getting care. Um, and it also advances some research and data collection on maternal health and uh, other related health conditions and outcomes. The other executive order, which was issued last month, tried to protect access to abortion care and contraceptions um, and also protect patient privacy and establish an um, interagency task force to use every federal tool available basically to protect access to a reproductive care. We're still sort of waiting on what the results of that will be. For a while, the White House was considering declaring abortion access a public health emergency. Um, and that was like partially to placate abortion advocates who were pressuring Biden to do everything in his power um, and, and thought he wasn't doing enough. But that never happened, partially because of uh, opposition from some of his top aides who worried that doing so wouldn't really activate any significant new funds or new powers and also potentially risk uh, conservative judges 
striking down that um, public health emergency and, and curbing the president's executive authority in the process. So that's kind of what's happening on the executive order level. Um, but the Biden administration also recently filed its first lawsuit challenging state restrictions on abortion since Dobbs came down Idaho over its trigger law, which is set to go in, into effect this month and would ban abortion except when necessary to save the life of a, a pregnant person, um, but not critically to protect their health and also in cases of rape or incest that were previously reported to the authorities. There's concern that that law could have a chilling effect on doctors because it would basically allow law enforcement to arrest and charge doctors whenever they perform an abortion. And then the doctor would kind of have to retroactively prove at trial that um, one of the narrow exceptions to the ban applied. So the Biden administration is basically arguing that that runs afoul of federal law that, you know, bar states from imposing restrictions that would prevent doctors from intervening um, when, when pregnant people are experiencing medical emergencies. The last thing is the White House kind of criticized the new Indiana abortion ban that passed in the last week, um, but it's not clear at this point whether they'll pursue legal action. And, you know, that's something that I think abortion advocates would like to see, especially because, you know, Biden hasn't really been comfortable getting out in front on this issue. He's you know, while he was in the Senate, he, he didn't really take any actions to try to codify abortion rights. And he's been a lifelong Catholic. So um, and even now, he doesn't really want to use the word abortion when he's talking about um, Dobbs. So he's like kind of taken a aggressively middle ground tact on the yeah. subject here. Um, There's definitely a way that people use codify Roe, defend Roe v. Wade, et cetera. Like that language also definitely serves as a euphemism for a lot of people who don't want to talk about abortion as such, you know? Yeah. And I think there's a certain generation of Democrat that um, is still hesitant to use that language. And, you know, I think that's what's interesting about Kansas is that abortion advocates were using that language and it still succeeded um, in a very red state. So maybe that should be a signal to Biden to sort of change his tact there and that, you know, he, he can be more definitive on this issue because, you know, Democrats may have the upper hand at this point. We now know that Democrats can be straightforward in what they want and could probably benefit from a little fire in the belly and raw anger about the issue that I don't think we're we're getting from the Biden administration at this particular moment. Is there anything happening in the Senate or at the congressional level right now that could actually move the ball forward here? Anything else that we haven't mentioned that that's important to know? I think that the main thing right now is this debate that Democrats are having with themselves over, like, how much should we compromise? There's a fear about setting sort of like the ceiling too low or about stigmatizing other abortions. Like, oh, if we vote to protect abortions in the cases of rape or incest, like, are we not then standing up for all the other abortions that are completely legitimate to have? And, and that's kind of a, a definitely a debate that's been going on. And I think, you know, there is a bill that, you know, there are bills around medication abortion. There are sort of these more narrow targeted bills. And I think there's right now a lack of consensus among senators over like, should we try to push for those? There was a sort of bipartisan compromise over things that people didn't think there could be bipartisan compromise before, like gun bill, the infrastructure bill, reproductive health groups say abortion is not like those other issues, that there is no chance of getting 10 votes on the Republican side. You know, some people say, heck, we should be trying anyway. We should be showing voters that we're doing everything we can to try to codify some sort of protection, not just 
in December, but now. And there's this bill uh, that was recently introduced by Senators Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Democrat Tim Kaine, and Democrat Kirsten Sinema that would be sort of in this compromised measure, lower standards. And there's a lot of debate over like, is this even worth entertaining now? Or should we keep fighting and see what happens after the election? I think that's kind of the, the state of where things stand in the Senate. I think that's a good place uh, to leave off for now. Um, thank you both for, for being here and we'll see you all in three months. We'll see what happens in three months on election day. Uh, yeah. Waiting with gritted teeth. <laughs> we should come back. That's all for us today. Thank you to Rachel Cohen and Nicole Norea for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcast. And I'm your host for today, Libby Nelson. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. 